Welcome to the 267th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion of obituaries and writing about a year of loss with Paige Cornwell of the Seattle Times. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time and many Fridays as well at 5.30 p.m. Korea Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, April 27th, 2021, there are 3,121,210 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States from COVID-19 has now risen to 572,674 lives lost. In India, 197,894 people have died from COVID-19. In Brazil, 392,204 have died of the disease. And in Mexico, latest tally there, 215,113 lives lost to COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Anita May Anna Wynalda was a devoted nurse, grandmother, and Walmart cashier. This appeared May 29, 2020, in the Seattle Times and was written by Michelle Baruchman. Through much of her 66 years, Anita May Anna Wanalda packed each minute of her day with life. Whether it was working as a nurse during the day in a Walmart cashier overnight, talking with people she encountered while out in the community, or sending each of her children and grandchildren a text message, funny picture, or emoji, something to encourage you to get through the day, she always found some time for others, her daughter Patricia Martinez said. Given how busy she kept her schedule, you may wonder how she fit it all in and still found time for sleep. Since she never turned down a request for help, she often took naps in her Honda minivan while waiting for people to finish appointments for which she provided transportation, Martinez said. Ms. Wynalda died May 12, 2020 from COVID-19, the disease caused by the novel coronavirus, her family said. She was initially treated at Trios Health in Kennewick, and was later transferred to Legacy Emanuel Medical Center in Portland, where she died. The fourth of six siblings, Anita May Soto was born in April 1954 in Fort Worth, Texas. The name Anita was bestowed by the nurse who delivered her, but Ms. Wynalda preferred to go by Anna. At the age of two, her parents moved to a farm in Yakima County, where the family raised and sold horses, cows, goats, and chickens, as well as fruits and vegetables. She graduated from Sunnyside High School in Sunnyside, 
Yakima County, and married David Wanalda, with whom she had two children, Martinez and Victoria, before divorcing after 18 years of marriage. A few years ago, the former spouses reunited as friends. The couple moved to Alaska soon after marrying when David Wanalda got a job working on the Alaska oil pipeline. Ms. Wanalda worked at a credit union and as a flight attendant before attending college for nursing, Martinez said. Throughout her life, she worked at various health agencies and medical facilities, including the Yakima Valley Farm Workers Clinic in Grandview. Ms. Wynalda also worked at the Walmart Supercenter in Sunnyside. After getting off work around 5 p.m. at the clinic, she would go home for a few hours and then work the graveyard shift at the retail store. She worked as a manager for a few years, training new employees at stores around the Pacific Northwest. Martinez said her mother did not want to travel as much as she got older and grew attached to the local customers, so she returned to working as a cashier. Ms. Wynalda continued to stretch herself and her paycheck to provide for others. She entered radio contests where she won tickets to movies and concerts her children could attend. She pitched tents in the backyard since she couldn't take her children camping because she had to work, Martinez said. She fostered several children with whom she maintained relationships, and she helped connect immigrants with lawyers so they could obtain documentation to reside legally. She always found time for people less fortunate, Martinez said. She taught us that even if you don't have a dollar, you can still offer a smile or friendly or kind words. Ms. Wynalda was a devoted Catholic, attending church almost every other Sunday. Although her family couldn't afford to provide her granddaughter, Dominique Martinez, a lavish quinceanera, the celebration of a girl's 15th birthday, Ms. Wynalda bought her a golden ring etched with a 15 and two hearts. I still have it to this day said Dominique Martinez, the oldest of Ms. Wynalda's 12 grandchildren. Even though she couldn't give me the biggest dress or prettiest venue, she put into consideration that it was a big milestone for me. Shopping, her granddaughter said, became a social activity for Ms. Wynalda. There was not a store we could go to where people wouldn't stop and say hi and chit-chat, she said. Ms. Wynalda couldn't leave any shopping trip without picking up something, a watering pot, even though she didn't have plants or birthday gifts for her grandchildren, Dominique Martinez said. It was completely random, but you would always end up needing the stuff she got you, her granddaughter said. As a cook, Ms. Wynalda was resourceful, stuffing fried potatoes, green beans, and corn into a tortilla with only salt and pepper for flavoring. Through her later years, she continued to enjoy dancing, especially swaying to salsa or moving to bachata. She was funny, Vibrant and full of life, Patricia Martinez said. She was also mighty, and even though she stood just four feet, 11 inches with heels on, when she walked into a room, she stood 10 feet tall, her daughter said. Okay, I'm happy to turn to the conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest, Paige Cornwell. Paige is a reporter at the Seattle Times. She attended the University of Nebraska-Lincoln originally. Paige is from Kansas City, Kansas. Paige Cornwell, thanks so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation looks like there today. Yeah, um, I'm calling from Seattle, where I live, and um, the pandemic situation is, um, I suppose, steady. Uh, similar to what it's been. Um, the good news is that we have 
a lot of vaccination appointments and a lot of um, vaccinations happening in Seattle specifically. Uh, I believe more than a third of residents have had at least their first dose. So a very exciting, um, very exciting time. So if you wouldn't mind just sort of going back to February of 2020, which I think for people in Washington is when COVID came into your consciousness. Talk a little bit about that time and how COVID started to um, you know, sort of enter the newsroom, enter the kinds of stories and what you were all facing there. Yeah, um, I, I think uh, early on, early in that year, there were talks of if COVID would reach the United States, it would probably reach the West Coast first and it might reach Seattle um, as one of its first uh, stops. So my first stories were covering um, a COVID uh, quarantine site east of Seattle um, for travelers coming from uh, Wuhan, I believe. And they weren't if they weren't able to quarantine somewhere else, they would go to this site. And all of the residents in that area were really concerned about COVID potentially being where where they were. Um, and it was this kind of eerie. Site. So I covered that and then another site they were potentially going to use for quarantine. Um, but at that point, I really, I gave some thought to it, of course, because I was writing about it. But people always added this caveat of we may, we may ne never have to even use this. And, um, you know, for most people, it's just like getting the flu. Uh, so on February, I believe February 28th or 29th uh, was the first. Um, day that uh, death was confirmed in the Seattle area in Kirkland. And I started working um, that day and really haven't stopped since on that beat. And how did it change your reporting? I mean, I've talked to lots of reporters who have told the many creative ways that they've dealt with um, trying to develop new sources and go places that they can't go to uh, in, in person. How did you deal with the issue of, of keeping safe while reporting these stories? Right. Uh, I think going in, we were still doing like news conferences outside of Life Care Center of Kirkland like we normally would, which looking back is terrifying to think about how we were all so close together and some reporters actually ended up getting sick. Um, within a few weeks, the newsroom uh, moved to a totally um, work from home environment. And so that was really hard to figure out how do I still report when I'm not there. Um, it was also difficult at some point to, we had been part of this big kind of media frenzy and then the rest of the media left to cover COVID other places and we were the ones left here. So wondering how you cover this big story that's still big in your community, but the national conversation is shifting to other places. So one of the things that uh, the Seattle Times was known for last year at the end of the year was this really tremendous Lives Remembered series. So I'd like to talk with you a little bit, if I can, about obituaries um, throughout the year and about that project. Maybe if people are not familiar with it, they can they can check it out. I've tweeted out the link and um, they can find it easily just by looking for Lives Remembered and Seattle Times. Tell us a little bit about the idea for this project and what it was like to work on it. Yeah, it came about just when, um, well, it started when any death it reported was a story uh, on its own. Um, of course, as more deaths reported, that unfortunately did not become the case anymore. 
Um, so we wanted to memorialize some of the people who had who had been lost, and they didn't necessarily need to be super long stories or people who would be considered um, uh, well known or or big enough normally for um, an obituary in the Seattle Times. But we wanted some way to show the trauma and the impact of these losses. Um, so at some point, it became my role to go through. Uh, paid obituaries or obituaries online and creating a database of any um, person I could find who had died of COVID. And that was generally through paid obituaries, but through other um, outlets, uh, GoFundMes, Facebook, a few other uh, ways as well. So we still have that uh, long, long database. So when did you start doing that? I mean, when you you kind of slipped in there, it became your job, but I imagine there was a bit more to it than that. How did that actually become something that was your responsibility? Um, I, I think, yeah, good question. Uh, I think um, at one point we were just updating it uh, first from the life care um, victims and then people in long-term care facilities. And that was something I remained focused on. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of just this natural transition from, um, nursing home residents to um, uh, others as well. Um, so at one point it just became a, a routine thing I would do when I had a system set up or how I would do it as well. So you were looking at the obituaries that um, the Seattle Times might write about more notable news figures um, who were dying of COVID-19. And then you were also looking at the paid death notices, paid obituaries, and then also you, you began to look more broadly. So within a period of time, I don't know, tell us a little bit about how how long did it take before you felt like you were one of the people who had a handle on this population um, in Seattle that was dying of COVID. And I ask you this because I had Alex Goldstein who created Faces of COVID on mm -hmm. a couple of times and and he and you have a kinship in this. I mean, he this became something that it became a regular practice for him. So I'm curious like how long did it take before you really knew you felt like you understood these different channels of information. It took a while. And I also think toward um, in the first few months, people weren't necessarily saying that someone had died of COVID or coronavirus. Um, maybe they didn't know. Maybe they didn't want to write it in the obituary. So within a few months, you started seeing people explicitly saying this person died of complications related to COVID or this person um died as a result of coronavirus. Um, so I started to see different keywords and kind of key into what, how people would um, write it. So it, it, it certainly was a few months before it became this, um, unfortunately, routine, but um, sort of streamlined process. So you're doing that throughout this period of time, also when the numbers are increasing so dramatically. And mm -hmm. I wonder, if, you wouldn't mind reflecting on that a little bit because it's something I think everyone has struggled with throughout the year just to try to get their mind around large numbers. And obituaries became, at least for me, um, a way to make sense of that. So we're inundated with these graphs and huge numbers and then you know we can turn to these life stories. And I found that, well, I guess there isn't one way to, to account for it. I found it consoling in some ways that those numbers were still attached to human lives. But then the obituaries became too much to read. I, I don't know how you how you thought about that work as those numbers were increasing. 
Right. It, it certainly does. It, it was very overwhelming, um, especially uh, during the winter months when the cases were rising dramatically. And I would um, look, I had a way to look up obituaries from um, every newspaper in Washington. And I would see there's like, you know, in one day, there's 30 new obituaries, and I need to enter them all in. Um, so it was very, very overwhelming. But um, for each name, I would attach a little bit about that person's life. And that, as you mentioned, is a way to to make sense of it. So um, you weren't necessarily just seeing someone's name. You were seeing who they were, where they lived, uh, what they did. And somehow that, I think, made it um, easier to, to make sense of it. So we know from the public health data the groups of people in society who may be disproportionately impacted by COVID. I'm sure those were some of the themes that were emerging. What were some of the other themes that you began to see as you're collecting these mini obituaries? Right. I think, you know, a theme, it's kind of an odd response, but a theme was that there was really no theme, um, just Mm -hmm. that there were people from all over, from all walks of life, um, from all ages. And at the beginning, it was people in Seattle, King County. And then it was people in Spokane across the state. But then it, it was just everyone um, and from all these different walks of life. And that, to me, um, was really striking because I kept trying to find some sort of theme, which is, in a way, I think sometimes people want to see that because if they don't themselves fit in with this group, then they think I'll be okay. But it was alarming to see just it's affecting every group um, and level of society, though, of course, some were, are disproportionately impacted. I don't know if there's any that particularly struck a chord with you. I'm sure they all did in some ways. But you shared um, with me the link to the one that I read for Anna Wanalda um, and a tremendous story of her life. And I, as I read that, and there's always a moment, it seems like, in these obituaries that there's a, it's often a family member narrating them. Mm-hmm. And you get these little details like her sleeping in the minivan outside waiting for somebody at a medical appointment. Mm-hmm. That's just so relatable, I think. Um, it tells you one little detail, kind of tells you a lot about her, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there were others that struck you the way that one struck me, but I was really impressed by her. Yeah, and um, when the state reached 5,000 victims, we did a um, full-page graphic, and it had 5,000 dots, and within that, there were 100 people. Each had um, some sort of um, description. So I think the very first one was a woman who raised uh, chow-chow dogs, and then there was um, an asparagus farmer, and uh, several couples who all died within a few days of each other. Um, just those little snippets still really um, uh, sit with me. I remember one obituary, a woman's um, family had written that there would be no services in person because she wouldn't wish this virus on anyone else. So things like that uh, really continue to sit with me. Some of those details as well um, have had some political punch throughout last year and into this year as well. I don't know, what kind of response did you get um, from people from from featuring these, positive, ne- negative, or 
or neutral. And I ask this because I've, I've talked with Kristen Urquiza several times um, on COVID calls, and she wrote an obituary of her father who died in Arizona. And she was very explicit in the obituary that this um, there was responsibility for this death, and it belonged mm-hmm. to Donald Trump, to the Republican Party. So the obituary also became a form of editorial, right. basically. I wonder how politics um, sort of merged with this work you were doing with Lives Remembered. Right. Um, I did notice, um, not, it wasn't actually as, um, as, uh, often as, as I actually had initially, uh, initially expected, um, in terms of people mentioning the, the politics aspect around the election, I did notice, um, some people put, wrote things like in lieu of flowers, please vote for Biden, please vote for Trump, things like that. Um, with the actual obituaries that we wrote, uh, we I would often receive messages from people. This is more toward the beginning, um, saying, "Well, why aren't you writing about every victim of car crashes or overdoses? Um, uh, why are you focusing on these people? Um, you know, you're uh, making it dramatic, even though it's a, a death. A death is dramatic, no matter what." Um, so we certainly received those messages, but for every message we received like that, we received another one from someone saying, thank you for showing the impact. Hmm. Have you done this kind of reporting before, covered disasters or written obituaries in significant numbers after mass casualty events or anything that prepared you for this kind of kind of immersion? Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, the, the Seattle Times is really um, an incredible organization when it comes to breaking news and everyone coming together. Um, but within that, those breaking news situations within a few weeks, it's, uh, over. And so this prolonged disaster is very different. Um, I think the one most, uh, not similar, but the one I, I can think of was, um, after the, uh, deadly landslide in Osa, Washington in 2014, which wiped out an entire neighborhood in a few seconds and killed 43 people. Uh, so. Uh, at, during that time, we we wrote obituaries for everyone who had died then as well. But that, of course, only uh, for us, the coverage was a few months, not this prolonged day-to-day coverage. Do you have any sort of training or support um, so that the toll of that doesn't um, isn't too high for reporters like yourself? I mean... We'd like to think that, you know, if, if you're writing or reading about someone who's died, there's a detachment there, of course. And if you're not a family member, you're kind of even further detached. But you read a lot of these. I mean, you worked daily with these. So how did you take care of yourself or how did you cope with that yourself? It's a personal question, but I, I wonder if you could share. Yeah, I think one thing that helped me is that I always very much felt a sense of purpose. And I would receive messages from people um, thanking us for what we're doing. So I always felt like um, something something sort of keep me going. I never felt like I was just shouting into a void, which was very helpful. Um, our newsroom has been very open about wanting to support each other. And if you need a few days off, that's okay. That's great. They encourage that. Um, so that's been very helpful as well. And just the... Um, aspect of of coming together is really helpful.
like to remind everybody that you're listening to COVID Calls, and this is a week on COVID Calls, talking about obituaries and speaking with journalists who've been working on obituary projects this year. And I'm talking with Paige Cornwell from the Seattle Times. Um, let me just shift over a little bit. Paige, you've been working on this Lives Remembered project uh, all last year, and um, but your regular, I don't know if it's your regular beat, but one of the beats you covered last year was around senior centers and long-term care facilities. Is that something you were writing about before the pandemic? It really wasn't. Actually, my beat, uh, my traditional beat is the east side, which is uh, the eastern suburbs of Seattle, which actually includes Kirkland, the first mm -hmm. site of the outbreak. Um, but I've long had an interest in um, elder care and um, senior care facilities. So it all kind of unfortunately came came together in terms of what I'd, I'd I hope to cover, um, but um, nursing homes and assisted living facilities and other care facilities became my uh, pseudo beat last year. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about, I mean, first of all, again, the sort of challenges of reporting in settings like that, that it became pretty clear by the spring and into the summer that these were extremely vulnerable populations. And it does strike me that that would be the kind of a site though where um, you would need to get close somehow to do the reporting. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you did it. Certainly. Um, during that time, there was always this focus on uh, Zoom or all this new technology. But for this population, uh, for the most part, that wasn't uh, as easy. Um, even like often health officials would say, go to this website to find out more information or to book a vaccine appointment. and. Uh, those um, who are over 65 or don't have um, the technological uh, knowledge, that's very difficult. So um, I would often do uh, call outs asking for people to call me if they were experiencing some sort of um, situation, for example, not being able to find a vaccine. And instead of putting it online, we would put it in our actual print newspaper. Um, and so that was one way of reaching this population. Um, often just the traditional phone call is what I would, would rely on, unfortunately, not, not getting close. Um, sometimes I could do that. For example, um, I did a story about couples separated by COVID-19 lockdowns at facilities, and I did go to one facility and was, was of course, far away. Um, but it, there were certainly a lot of challenges with it. You mentioned this story, I think it appeared September 13th, about couples who were separated during this time. It's a really tremendous uh, story, and I'm just going to read one, one line from it. You wrote, more than 60 years into their marriage, Sheila and Don Belcher were separated at length twice a day. Every day, Don, 86, walks around the corner from the building's entrance through a thicket of flowers to the window where Sheila is waiting. She picks up a call on the room's landline and hears her husband's voice. And it goes on from there. There's several couples that are in there that um, that you kind of follow their daily experience and methods mm -hmm. of keeping their relationships going. Tell us about some of the other ones that you wrote about in that piece. Yeah, I wrote um, about another couple who uh, the wife lived in their home and then her husband lived in an adult family home and they weren't doing any um, in-person visits at all, even socially distant, because he has dementia and she would, he would just get confused 
um, another couple where the wife had advanced dementia and he was able to actually visit her, but only because it was um, a compassionate care visit, which is where they allow you to visit when someone um, is at end of life. And the fourth was um, a, uh, a couple where the husband lived in a memory care facility and the wife um, lived at home as well, but she had advanced lung cancer and she actually was able to visit him uh, one last time before she died. And she actually died, I believe it was four days before my, my story ran. So were families sort of eager, that's probably not the right word, but were people, I know they were willing because you wrote about it. I'm just sort of curious about people's willingness and sort of why they wanted to tell these stories. I mean, it's so difficult to to relate, but they, based on the details you had in the story, they were willing to open up to you. Sure. And for each couple, I had either um, been connected to them through someone else or uh, someone else had reached out directly to me. So there was never any cold calling or me um, having to push too much to cover their story. I think for something as sensitive as this, that was really important. And the couples I spoke with said they wanted to show just the impact that these visits were having. Um, I think around that time and toward the start of the pandemic as well, you saw a lot of the kind of cute stories of, oh, look at this man. He's holding up a sign outside his wife's care facility. Look how you know, cute that is. Look how heartwarming that is. And it is heartwarming, but underneath that is this very sad reality that they are separated. So I wanted to show that reality as well. Part of that reality also is that people's medical conditions can advance very rapidly based on if it's Alzheimer's or um, dealing with the aftermath of a stroke. I thought you captured that really well. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that that reality. It seemed to be something, you know, if a couple, if somebody has advanced dementia or Alzheimer's, it might in a very early stage be something that people are coping with, but then it can advance very rapidly. And if they're alone, that's something I felt like I hadn't seen that covered in other reporting outside of your outside of your reporting last year. Oh yeah. And that actually kind of stems all of these different stories I did I are kind of connected or I heard from someone responding to this story about that one. So I wrote a story about people whose loved ones had dementia and had um, their dementia had progressed extremely rapidly in the past year. Um, and uh, within that, you had to look at how often if someone's living in a care facility, their family member is probably doing a lot to fill in the gaps of their care and coming to see them and um, providing this routine. And even as something as simple as like opening their uh, juice carton um, that workers might not be able to do. Um, so just looking at that uh, progression. Um, and so I followed a daughter of a woman whose um, dementia had um, progressed very rapidly. And then the father of a woman who had early onset Alzheimer's, she was only 55 and what he was doing as well. And he was, um, he lived actually across the street from his daughter. She lived in a care facility and he lived in an apartment. So he was able to establish some routine, but still very, very difficult. Did the policies of long-term care facilities, elder care facilities um, change a lot throughout the year in Washington? 
Um, they throughout the year it, it sort of ebbed and flowed in terms of whether or not you could have a socially distant visit outside, but for the most part, loved ones could not get into the buildings for the entire year. So everything you're talking about, it was kind of a stable form of deprivation that you were able to then track over a long period of time, which I think is is important. What were the impacts on staff that you were able to, to notice? Right, the staff were so um, overworked and often burnt out and they, um, these, these residents are wanting some sort of social connection um, after feeling isolated and these staff were having to do more than they normally would and were also providing that interaction that um, normally family members would provide. And so many of so many staff had actually quit throughout the year. So the ones who remained were even more overworked. I'm wondering if that that reporting, um, the kinds of issues that are raised in it, did they have, were you able to notice there was any kind of political uptake of those? I asked that because in Pennsylvania, for example, um, Senator Casey by late 2020 had sort of picked that up as a signature issue, I think in part because of reporting kind of similar to yours in Pennsylvania that was really putting a face on these issues and making it real to people what it means to be in one of these facilities and be deprived, be lonely, be alone, and to have staff that's turning over. And that turned into legislative action um, there. I don't know, have you seen any legislative changes or discussion of that in Washington throughout the year? There are, there is um, talk and lobbying for um, uh, more uh, influx of dollars into um, providing care. And um, I do know that uh, Governor Inslee has said throughout the year that he wanted to provide some sort of mechanism for visits to, um, to occur. And I think it is because we are seeing the stories. And what about the vaccination issue in terms of these facilities? Were they among the first to receive vaccination? How's that been going there? Yeah, they were among the first in late December, early January. Um, the rollout was uh, uh, rocky. Um, some places were waiting a lot longer than they thought they would. Um, having their clinics uh, canceled, a, a, lot of, um, a lot of issues at the beginning, but um, I believe most, if not all facilities, have had vaccine clinics. But another issue we're seeing now is that new residents haven't been vaccinated and don't have a mechanism for getting vaccinated. So places that were earlier um, almost fully vaccinated among its residents are seeing that percentage dwindle. And then uh, staff members might not necessarily be vaccinated as well. So unfortunately we're seeing outbreaks again. Well. You've been another part of the story you've been covering is is coping with the relaxation of those um, lockdown orders, mm -hmm. and that too has a, a a stress to it. It has its own sort of interesting rhythm to it. You wrote a story that was published March third, titled "Washington Nursing Homes Reeling and Trying to Save Residents from Dying of Broken Hearts as COVID nineteen Fears Finally Ease." And I thought one of the great details in the story was the if I've got this right, it's like the nurses station at, at night is a sort of a, um, it's like a dispatchers, you know, uh, kind of station and, and people stop by. Is that, I mean, tell us a little bit more about that, the function yeah. of that. Um, it was just uh, that um, 
uh, over throughout the night, um, residents might stop by and talk to the nurses. And in the past, uh, they weren't allowed to do that. They had to really stay in their rooms. And now that's that's sort of eased, which is a good sign, but still weird for people who have had to be so far away for so long. Yeah, these um, reunions as as well are becoming a kind of a, a feature of, of your reporting. I guess that, how do you feel about that, being able to, to write stories where now these families that have been separated are able to come back together? Yeah, that was, that's been so great. Um, I was able to witness one um, reunion and write about it and then also witness others in the lobby that day. Um, and it was uh, a couple who were actually meeting their great grandson for the first time. So that was really an incredible and heartwarming experience to uh, get to get to write on. But within that, of course, there's anxiety over um, how these visits will go and whether that means there might be more cases and the long term impacts of of this isolation. And I think uh, loved ones at the at the start thought that doors were just open and anyone could come in and visit anyone, which isn't necessarily the case. You have to schedule visits and, and make sure everyone's distanced still. So certainly some um, adjustment pains from that. I'll just read a line from this story because, again, these details are really important and moving. You wrote, two little boys walked into the lakeshore, smiling under their Pokemon masks and eyeing the welcome back balloons that were floating in the South Seattle senior residences lobby. And they were there to see their great grandparents, George and Mary Kozu. How do you prepare for a story like this? Um, yeah, good question. I had been looking um, for some reunions to watch, uh, and that was really just the story idea at that point. Um, I had uh, working relationships with several um, communications offices for the larger long-term care facility companies, and so I was connected to the family that way. Um, but it really was, I had really kind of no idea what was going to happen at this reunion. Um, so it was a lot of just writing down as many details as I could, getting video of people people saying hello. Um, and yeah, it was it turned out even better than I than I could have expected. Yeah, it's a really great story. Congratulations on that one. And it's um, as I mentioned before we got on, you know, I read a lot of your stories from the fall, particularly kind of back to back. And uh, it's a lot to take in when, when we really go back and look at the suffering. Uh, and so to then leaven it a bit with some of these reunion stories is, uh, is very nice, certainly. I want to just remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Paige Cornwell, journalist who works at the Seattle Times today about loss and about obituaries. So what happens now in 2021 uh, the Lives Remembered series ran at the end of 2020. Are you still compiling obituaries? Does that work go on? It does. Um, thankfully, there are fewer deaths day to day, um, but that work still still continues, um, and I'm still compiling compiling obituaries. You worry that um, with the news so taken now, with vaccination and declining rates that somehow the impact of that will lessen? I mean, how do we keep that in the forefront of people's minds? Good question. Um, I think I think maybe um, now readers will perhaps um, look at these obituaries and be reminded that we are certainly not 
out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and perhaps when there are fewer people, there's more time to actually look at, at what has been lost. I don't know if you have measures, you must have measures inside the newspaper, but kind of measures that we can use to think about how much people are engaging with these now. I mean, I, I'm really concerned that as the narrative, I mean, it's a, it's no way out of it. You want out of the pandemic and you want people to focus on the positive aspects that are obvious um, mm -hmm. about things getting better. But I really worry about loss of memory in this mm -hmm. moment and that we sort of recover and say, well, the vaccine did it and we can, and we can move on. I mean, these obituaries play a, a crucial role in that. But I guess in a sense, it's kind of coming back to some of the things you shared earlier about responses you got, like, why are you so focused on this? Why can't you focus on something else? Are you hearing that now as well, that the news is getting better? A bit, although even in our, um, our happiest stories about vaccinations or long-term care facilities, you have reminders of why this is important. Um, for example, even I did a story about a uh, COVID vaccination a site that um, every day or before um, eligibility opened up for everyone, but everyone gathered uh, to see if they could get an excess dose. And at that mm. site, they still have a COVID testing site as well. Um, and that's actually right next to a long-term care facility that had an outbreak. So there's all these reminders, even in, in the happy stories. And are you going to keep doing this for the foreseeable future? I mean, people are going to be dying for, from COVID in the U.S. for a long time. Yeah, good, good question. Um, I have no idea. I think if last year of, of April of 2020, if you had asked me would I be doing this in six months, I said I would have said, no, you're, you're crazy. I had no idea. Um, so I really have no idea uh, what the future holds at this point. I mean, at some point, you become one of a handful of journalists around the country mm -hmm. who's bearing this memory over a long period of time. And I don't, I'm sure you've thought about that, but it's a kind of responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, as, as others you've interviewed have said, everyone has kind of become a COVID reporter. Um, so I think everyone has that, that imprint now and in many different industries as well. Well, what advice do you have for us then who've not been as immersed in these life and death stories as you have? Um, good question. I, I think just taking time to remember the impact and who has been lost. And um, I think, looking especially at groups who have been disproportionately impacted is really important because the pandemic has not impacted all of us the same. And I think that can sometimes be easy to forget, especially if you are someone who is fortunate to be able to work from home and maybe you work for a company that um, hasn't had any financial impact and maybe no one you know has been um, impacted medically. So I think it's important to remember that affected everyone so differently. Do you see that even in the types of obituaries that come across your desk? I know one of the things that Alex Goldstein at Faces of COVID has been trying to do is to raise money to have obituaries written. I mean, they're not free, right? Right. Right. And that was important. Um, I, I do. I, I look at 
obituaries, also looking at um, social media and smaller uh, news sites or or, um, or blogs, even trying to find people because, as you said, not everyone is doing a, a paid obituary. So um, let me just ask you a kind of a broader question here about journalism more generally. And you mentioned um, a callback to Chris Majerian's talk I had with him yesterday. He said sort of everybody in the newsroom at the LA Times became a COVID reporter, um, many of whom had never covered health issues or healthcare uh, at all. I'm assuming something similar happened at Seattle Times, that everybody was suddenly on the COVID beat. Certainly. Um on the COVID beat within the beat that you have because no one was really mm-hmm. left unaffected by it, right? So what, how do you think this you know, might impact journalism over a longer period of time? You know, journalism students, for example, I, I would imagine people are gonna be drawn because of the politics of last year, because of the importance of news reporting this last year. I, I'm guessing on this, but I would imagine journalism schools are gonna see an uptick in applications, but certainly this past year has transformed the industry, I would I would think. I wonder if you could share your thoughts about that. Certainly, I think people really were clued into how much misinformation is rampant um, on social media sites, especially. We saw that certainly at the very beginning. Um, I'm in a lot of different um, community Facebook groups and just the, the rumors were, were crazy. Um, so I think people, realized, okay, there are certain places that we can look to for more reliable information. Um, The Seattle Times, and I believe some other, I know other outlets um, made a lot of their COVID coverage free outside of a paywall, which I think um, the community really uh, was drawn to and saw that um, we see journalism as a public service and not just a way to get clicks or Money's important, of course, but not just just a money maker. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that our community recognized the the value that we have in a way that perhaps they hadn't before. And just looking ahead, then, what's a milestone? If you do have one in mind, like when the next lives remembered sort of experience, you know, should be expected. I think last year there were hundred thousand deaths. There were various points at which it seemed obvious we needed to grapple with the scale. Lives Remembered appeared at the end of 2020. What's the next one of those, do you think? Gosh, I I don't know. Um, We reached 5,000. Interestingly, Washington has kind of historically been at like 1% of whatever the United States death toll has been. Mm -hmm. Um, But but I I have no idea. Um, Now it's... Um, not not necessarily interesting, but um, you're looking at COVID in other countries now and how communities in the Seattle area have been impacted by that as well. Um, so there's a very large Indian community in the Seattle area and they're grappling with how to help their loved ones in India now. Um, so looking at perhaps not just Washington or the United States, but impacts everywhere. Well, I want to remind folks that you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls every weekday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can catch also COVID Calls most Fridays uh, at 5.30 p.m. Korea Time. And I want to thank my guest, Paige Cornwell, for talking about um, some incredible reporting last year in the Lives Remembered series and obituaries, and also your 
work in senior centers and long-term care, care facilities. Paige, um, congratulations on the work and good luck as you keep going and we'll keep keep watching, Great, keep reading. Thank you so much. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time when I talk with Dan Waken from the New York Times. Thank you.